2022 has been a very good year. After many years, actually decades, of having to take solace from every crumb of right reason from the court, usually only in brave and lonely dissents, we have a gaggle of cases where a conservative majority did well by originalism. So I want to give credit where credit is due. <laughs> Uh, but I want to take a, a, a step back um, and talk a little bit about how we got in this mess because that has a lot to do with how I feel about the solutions that people are proposing, okay? So in the Western tradition of storytelling from antiquity to Hollywood, some basic elements are required. Narrative, conflict, compelling dialogue, and a hero and a villain. So when we tell the story of originalism and center on its present conflicts, I think there's been sort of a recent trend to recast certain figures as villains. Uh, and so I think we should start the conversation by casting uh, the director's eye and get the roles right. Contrary to an, incredibly, uh, an increasingly popular narrative, President Reagan's Attorney General Ed Meese is not the villain of this story. He sort of invented uh, originalism, but he had a little help. Um, when he first raised the issue of original meaning in a 1985 speech to the American Bar Association, he acknowledged the need for the court to serve as a bulwark of limited constitution. He said, that meant the text of the document and, its, and the meaning of its words at the time of the framing must be the judicial standard in giving effect to the Constitution. According to General Meese, in addition to checking government power, the courts, especially the Supreme Court, should serve as the primary moral force in American politics. That's in that 1985 speech, which people probably uh, don't remember or haven't looked at in a long time. As he explained, the court is what it was understood to be when the Constitution was framed, a political body. The judicial process is, at its most fundamental level, a political process in the truest sense of that word. It is a process wherein public deliberations occur over what constitutes the common good under the terms of a written Constitution. So that jurisprudence of original meaning was intended to be an antidote to the ad hoc, ideologically tainted predilections of living constitutionalists. Um, and as Mies put it, a constitution that is viewed uh, as only what the judges say is no longer a constitution in the true sense. Um, the result, however, was not exactly what the Reagan administration had contemplated. Far from quelling the court's ideological turn, originalism from the left side of the political spectrum spawned a host of variations um, that Josh has talked about, many of which were indistinguishable from living constitutionalism. On the right, for different reasons, things also went awry. Yes, conservative judges cultivated modesty, restraint, and humility in the judicial role. But that diffidence traveled in lockstep with positivism, a thoroughgoing majoritarianism, and a moral void that amplified all the discontents of law without values. So when I said Mies was not 
uh, alone in inventing this, Judge Robert Bork was one of the primary strategists of originalism, and he was horrified by what was going on then with the Warren Court, right? Um, and some of you may remember the Warren Court, some of you are too young, but um, there was great concern that the court was usurping huge swaths uh, of concerns that should have been left to the judicial branches. And there was a term that we no longer hear anymore that um, Alexander Bickle coined called the counter-majoritarian difficulty. And that expressed the idea, which we don't seem to think about anymore, that it was not appropriate for the unelected, uh, independent judiciary um, to make these kind of decisions. Those were supposed to be returned to the political branches. Um, but 60s conservatives were not the first to express consternation about the overweening power of the court. The anti-federalists raised this concern during the ratification debates. The federalists were more eloquent and more optimistic than their opponents, but it turns out that Brutus was more prescient and understood better the uses of pessimism. He warned that the judiciary's interpretive monopoly would lead to arrogance and extravagance, that the least dangerous branch would actually become the most powerful, and that the conflicts of checks and balances could shift from competition to collusion. Um, and it took a figure with the political talents and immense ambitions of Earl Warren, California's only three-term governor, to give Brutus's warning flesh and blood. So Judge Bork pioneered the critique of the Warren Court and the foibles of the living constitutionalists. He derisively dismissed the possibility of an alternative originalism that relied on tradition and wisdom as a cross between, quote, Edmund Burke and Fiddler on the Roof. So believing that the Warren Court had shattered tradition, he went in search of a theory and landed on neutral principles of a thoroughgoing majoritarian positivism which eschewed any reliance on foundational values. So originalism sought to be identified by what it opposed. The practical effect uh, of the emphasis on neutrality was to enliven a philosophical idea that strengthened what it opposed, but at least it made judicial restraint respectable again. None of this is new. The wholesale revision of constitutional premises goes back to Holmes, his repudiation of natural law in favor of a toxic mix of social Darwinism, pragmatism, and historicism set the stage for the long and continuing reign of progressivism. That was such a smooth move couched in Holmes's inimitably caustic rhetoric that the legal commissariat hardly noticed that the only solid basis for limited government had been adroitly removed. Uh, as Michael Ullman acknowledged in a Claremont review almost two decades ago, originalists successfully exposed the fragility of postmodernist constitutional constructs, constructs but they were far less successful at reaffirming the extra textual enduring self-evident truths that must undergird the case for limited government. 
Two decades into the originalist project, Yulman described a court that had, quote, rewritten inconvenient constitutional history to suit fashionable ideological preferences, conjured novel cons constitutional rights and theories out of thin air, uprooted many well-settled norms of American political culture, and all but decreed that the Constitution incorporates postmodern conceptions of moral autonomy. Indeed, by reading their own predilections about autonomous individualism into both the free speech and religion clauses, Yulman says the court incentivized pornography while treating religion as a toxic presence in the public square. The list of innovations he finds irreconcilable with the Founders' Constitution is lengthy and damning. In a responsive essay, Harry Jaffa explained why there have been so few victories for conservative principles in the last 50 years and why the so-called victories often seemed at best only delaying actions in the onward march of judicial activism. Conservative judges reject the living constitution in favor of strict adherence to the text, context, and logical structure of the constitution. That sounds pretty good and pretty protective, but Jaffa argued both the advocates for and the opponents of living constitutionalism were followers of Holmes and embraced unquestionably the fact-value distinction at the heart of progressive orthodoxy. That is something that's been mentioned here, I think, by most of the people um, who have been talking about how we uh, need to rethink uh, the originalist project. Uh, this dogma holds that all moral judgments are value judgments and that there is no rational way of deciding among conflicting values. Jaffa presented as Exhibit A a 1976 essay by Chief Justice Rehnquist describing the source of morality in a democratic society. This is what he said. If a society adopts a constitution and incorporates safeguards for individual liberty, these safeguards indeed do take on a generalized moral rightness or goodness, neither because of any intrinsic worth nor because of any unique origins in someone's idea of natural justice. The laws that emerge after a typical political struggle in which various value judgments are, debased, are debated likewise take on a form of moral goodness because they have been enacted into positive law. Really. Rehnquist then cites Holmes' famous attack on natural law approvingly. He says, um, you know, this leaves the door ajar to unqualified majoritarianism and it seems to mean strict textual originalism is indistinguishable from positivism. So Jaffa's conclusion is, quote, no one can at one and the same time be a legal positivist and an adherent to the original intentions of the framers. And I think that's what uh, common good originalism, uh, better originalism, I think that's what all those things are kind of saying. Um, you know, is there a way for courts um, to go back to those original intentions? If not, what's the point of originalism, right? Um, but the, the crisis, he says, of American constitutionalism, the crisis of the West in general, lies in precisely the denial that there are such principles or truths 
Uh, in, in other words, once the claims and reliance on eternal verities are hollowed out, everybody seems to be on the same side, and it is not the side of the founder's constitution. Uh, that is not to say Rehnquist never made any good decisions. His descent in Roe uh, was a direct precursor of Dobbs. He actually said they found a right that was apparently unknown to the drafters of the 14th Amendment, exactly the complaint that prevailed this term, right? Um, so I find myself, as Professor Arcus likes to say, in heated agreement <laughs> with much of the critique Josh Hammer and Hadley Arcus level at the originalist project. None of us see originalism or textualism as a bad thing. No conservative condemns the attempt to forestall the utter destruction of the written constitution in the hands of living constitutionalists. But uh, I do have a problem with um, relying totally uh, on judges um, to solve this problem for us because um, I think George, Judge Bork was right when he said that, that just using general words as this capacious vessel into which you can pour elite values means that judges are taking sides in the culture war. And the truth of that observation is no longer disputed. Now the same sycophants who lauded discovery of new rights express outrage over the modest retrenchment of originalist decisions and declare that um, the same court they lavishly praised is now no longer a legitimate institution. Um, so I think that um, I have considerable sympathy uh, for judges who are concerned and who really believe that restraint is necessary, but I think maybe that's an overreaction. It's really a dilemma um, because you can't judge without resort to some kind of ultimate standard. The positive law is never enough. Anybody who uh, lived through the Holocaust or de jure segregation would tell you that the positive law is not enough. On the other hand, uh, liberty requires limited government, and that means a limited judiciary too. But the problem with that is it's not clear that the government can be limited, right? So the uh, Anthony DeJose uses the uh, analogy of Ulysses asking his sailors to tie him to the mask. But the problem with the government is that uh, being the monopolist of all no law, it can untie itself. And judges, uh, whether people feel comfortable with that idea or not, are actually part of the government and can use its power for uh, illiberal results just as much as any other part of the government can. <laughs>